Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, a piece-by-piece, episode-by-episode exploration of the winners of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, with hosts Andrew Grenade and David Thurmeyer. Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, episode 41, where we're traveling back to 1983 and the 37th winner of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, Ellen Tafe Zwillick, for her Symphony Number no. 1, subtitled Three Movements for Orchestra. So, Andrew, what are your experiences with this historic winner, Ellen Tafe Zwillick? Yeah, so my uh, first experience with her music was actually teaching it because she showed up in the Norton Anthology of Western Music, which is one of these standard textbooks that a lot of music historians teach out of. Uh, she showed up in the last one that was edited by Claude Poliska mm. with her Concerto Grosso, 1985. And then the next one, the first one edited by J. Peter Burkholder, uh, actually includes the first movement of this first symphony. So that was my first experience with her music was here's a modern composer. And this was, well, the first time it appeared in the anthology would have been not even 20 years after she won the Pulitzer Prize. It would have been in the late 90s. So the first time I ever taught out of that book, there she was. Wow. Yeah. What about you? Uh, She was one of those names that you'd Mm. see a lot. I knew she was at Florida State because I think that was just as a comp major, you sort of knew about her and that was where she was. Uh, I, she was also in an anthology for 20th century theory that oh. uh, when I was at Indiana University taking a class in uh, theory ped, I think uh, we were looking through anthologies mm-hmm. and hers was in the Mary Wennerstrom anthology from 1987. Wow. So she's been... Just like five years after she won the Pulitzer. Yeah. So she's been, I would say, canonized mm-hmm. in... Very quickly. Very quickly in these, these anthologies and teaching materials. So uh, there must be something there to talk about, so maybe we should tell the story. Telling the story. So you mentioned FSU, Florida State University. She is a Florida native, so Mm -hmm. um, Zulik was born in Miami. Um, Evidently a non-musical family, so one of these... Uh, people who just had the precocious talent uh, and began writing her own compositions at a very young age ended up going to Florida State University for her undergraduate degree. And that evidently was a very um, excellent experience for her to to be able to uh, study there and also got to meet uh, Ernst von Dachnani, who was in the end of his career working at FSU. So a really, um, I think, excellent training, but also outside the orbit of the kind of, at least at the beginning, outside the orbit of the, the Ivy League <laughs> that we've seen, the Pulitzer really favors. Very much so. It's very on the periphery, because when you live in Florida, it feels like you're at the end of the earth, down at the bottom of the country. Hanging off the edge of the Hanging, country. <laughs> yes, that's right. It does feel like that. And even more so, she was a performer, mm-hmm. uh, mainly, and that's where she really got her start, uh, playing in orchestras as a violinist and uh, played trumpet in marching band or in different bands in high school. Uh, But she played in the American Symphony Orchestra after moving to New York and playing with Leopold Stokowski, Andre Previn, really Mm -hmm. big-name people. And uh, so that's something else. If we had a lot of winners who were primarily performers, and we've had some that do both, but... Yeah, but that's where she started. That's where she started, yeah, exactly. And then slowly learned, I'm really interested in composition, and began moving into composition. So in the 1970s, she goes to Juilliard, where she gets to learn with a lot of famous Pulitzer winners <laughs> who were teaching there at the time. So Elliot Carter, multiple yep. uh, winner, and 
I mean, for our purposes, last episode's winner, Roger Sessions. You was couldn't one have of her planned teachers. this you couldn't have planned any it better. better. Yeah. So she ended up being the first uh, woman to ever earn a PhD in composition from Juilliard. Mm-hmm. So, so in that sense, uh, that that gives her some of the connections, no mm-hmm. doubt, and the inroads to becoming a, a well-known composer, being in that center of New York and knowing all of these famous people. So, but tragedy hit, and in 1979, after her husband died, uh, she had a very different view on music, and this is not unlike someone who didn't win a Pulitzer, but is talked about a lot, which is George Rockberg, mm-hmm. who's had, I think his son died. In the 1960s, yeah. yeah. And, and complete he, reassessment of his music, and it seems like uh, Zvilik did the same thing. Mm-hmm. Looked at her music and said, well, how can I move forward from this personal tragedy, and moved from what we've seen uh, during the 60s and 70s, the kind of dominant compositional method. I mean, what's been winning Pulitzers is very often atonal, uh, often yeah. very jagged, <laughs> right? Um, very modernist. So, yeah, yeah, to something that is much more um, approachable. And we begin to see hints of this, but this idea of what sometimes is called the new romanticism, mm-hmm. my air, little air quotes, <laughs> but the idea that these composers began to say, well, how can we get back to personal expression and bring back a lot of those kind of tonal structures. And we've seen a couple of winners over the past five, six years who, like someone like Schwantner, who's yeah, very personal, yeah. but um, it's very personally expressive, or Del Tredici. Um, Del Tredici. So we've yeah. seen a couple of people who are associated with this, and she fits right in line with that movement. Yeah, yeah very much so. And so this piece that we're talking about today originally was titled Three Movements for Orchestra, and we want to do a plug here for a first on hearing the Pulitzers. We are now starting a series of trying to uh, record episodes and speak to all of the living winners. And she is our first living winner that we're going to that we spoke with. And so we're going to be releasing a bonus episode of our interview and discussion with Professor Zwillick. And she, you're going to love it. I think she was uh, wonderful to speak to, some great stories. Uh, and and in relation to this, she talked about. Well, if you look at this piece, it has two names. And so we asked the question, well, is this called Symphony Number no. One mm-hmm. and the baggage associated with that? Or is it three movements for symphony for three movements for orchestra? And what did she say about it? Oh, I think that we'll have to let our listeners <gasps> oh. wait for the episode <laughs> to <laughs> discover. Don't spoil it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think one of the things that we talked about that I think is worth discussing is the fact that um, in 1982, what does it mean to write a symphony number no. one? Yeah. Yeah. And and this whole idea, I mean and we're talking about telling the story of, of the, the cultural currents underneath this piece at the time, uh, this kind of return to romanticism uh, is very important. And so uh, in a separate interview, not in our interview, you can hear what she said to us <laughs> the next interview, but uh, in a separate interview, she said, I think more and more composers today are reflecting the liveliness and diversity of what's going on in American music. I don't really believe in renunciations of styles I've worked in previously, though. I don't believe I make musical compromises, but I would like to think my music has more and more a sense of reaching out. Hmm. So this idea of thinking about the audience, going to your audience with something that they're going to respond to, I think is, is kind of part and parcel of this trend, this kind of new romanticism trend, but not just let me look at the great compositional games I can play and the compl- complex structures I can create, but something that is personally expressive to my audience. And that's something we have seen in, in a few winners recently is there has been more of a attention to, again, we, we always say not accessibility in the mm-hmm. sense of a, a pop song, but but at least more attention to in, audience engagement or exactly. that there is an audience involved. 
But there are also many interesting, uh, complex, compositional things that we should talk about as we go behind the notes. Behind the Notes. All right, so this is a three-movement work, as, as we mentioned the subtitle, Three Movements for Orchestra, and it's kind of a, a fast, well, fast-ish allegro mm-hmm. movement, then a slower song-type movement, and then a rondo. So making use of some older forms or formal types, and certainly to me the most interesting part is the it's very organic. Mm-hmm. It's built from uh, a small motive and an interval minor third and it's just grown and developed throughout and uh, in fact uh, my partner said he likes her music because it sounds like brahms and, and it does it does. it's very interesting because when you told me that <laughs> that little quote about sounds like brahms and then i went back and listened to it i said oh you can absolutely hear it yeah and this is a, quite a change from someone like Roger Sessions, her teacher, who does not sound like Brahms at no, all. No. But in many ways, the kind of musical ideas are, are there in that, if you remember when we talked about the sessions, I mean, there is this uh, great working out of musical material. And I think she's doing the same thing. It's just a little bit more obvious mm-hmm. because you start with that motto. So I thought we'd just listen to the beginning of the first symphony to kind of get that motto in your ear. Every time that motto comes back, it gets a little bit faster and a little bit louder. I know at the beginning there, it's really it's, soft. I could hardly hear it. It's I had to so put headphones tiny. on to, to hear that. But then that becomes, you hear that everywhere. Mm-hmm. And it becomes just omnipresent. And it really sounds very, I mean, organic is the term that she uses, but it sounds very natural the way it kind of grows. It never seems like she's going off in the left field. It just one thing after another leads. And I thought maybe listen to about three minutes in and you can really hear how that motto has been developed. that section for you because I knew you love the ripping horn. I love the horn part. <laughs> These are there's some very tough horn parts. Very tough. Very high. Very yeah. virtuosic. Uh, but yeah, and, and she even acknowledges the continuous variation, or mm-hmm. what what Walter Frisch would say, developing variation in Brahms. Uh, but that that kind of constant uh, developing. But it's not. But there's so much contrast. I think yeah. in the orchestration to me that what makes it attractive is that it's always like glistening or glass or these just sounds and mm-hmm. the way she uses the orchestra oh, absolutely. to bring out the motivic ideas is really effective. Yeah, and I think you heard that in that last little section. Mm-hmm. And there are these moments, like halfway through that little excerpt, where it sounds like it stops and then it moves into something completely different Yeah, and a completely different timbre. So there's a really uh, focus on, whereas with Brahms, or those, you know, that kind of developing variation, <laughs> uh, if you listen to the way that the 
the motto develops, it doesn't really change in timbre. It kind no. of it's like it stays in the strings, okay. But here, every time it develops and changes, she changes the timbre too. And so there's a great use of timbral changes in addition to kind of motivic or harmonic changes. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, well, I, I had to listen to this piece a bunch of times, and then it, it sort of, I had a big epiphany on it the last time I heard it. Uh, how do you, how did you interpret the three different movements, or did you find them very different? Or because you know, as I said, they're different formally, uh, but some of the sounds are... Yeah, I didn't find them that different. No, no. Especially because, you know, that first movement builds and builds and builds uh, into this kind of great climax. And then the last minute and a half or two minutes is this kind of dying away. Right. And it flows seamlessly into the second movement. Exactly, exactly. So it almost seems like a continuous work yeah, exactly. in a lot it's of ways. One large continuous work. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can tell that there's this slow <laughs> song-like section. And yeah. I mean, you can tell that and then it picks up a little bit at the end. I mean, you can you can feel that kind of historic structure, um, but there isn't the sense of, and now we're done with the first movement, let's <laughs> rustle our papers around, <laughs> and now we start the second movement. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, no, it, it does seem more... Well, it, it would go along with the whole idea of being organic, sort mm-hmm. of just continuously flowing and and saying something different with that the, that idea and that motto. Well, when we think about a symphony, at least when I think about a symphony, I'm so conditioned from the romantic period, right? Beethoven and on, I'm, I'm conditioned to, all right, this is going to be a massive 45-minute, hour-long yeah, right. essay on musical material. And this is not it. This is very concise, very compact. There is nothing extraneous in it mm-hmm. in the way that it's constructed. And I do think there are, I can hear influences from her teachers and mm. from, uh, I would say, second Viennese school, to some extent, maybe in the orchestration, sort of Klangfarben melody mm. at times. Uh, but the the Carter, the, the more dissonant pitch language does, there's like a battle sometimes. Yeah. You, clarity of A, I think, is the main center, tonal center, A to C. But then you'll have an B flat on top of it or something, just kind of light dissonance in here is kind of melding very much... Mm-hmm. Uh, a good synthesis of what was happening at that time. Yeah, so both the honoring the old, but also yeah. embracing this kind of new direction that the, the music is going. Exactly. Well, shall we see what everyone has to say about it? Hit or miss? Let's start, as we always do, with the jury report, which you always bring to us. I do. So this was premiered by Gunther Schuller, who you'll hear discussed in our bonus episode a little bit. And uh, it was on Wednesday evening, May 5th, 1982. Uh, Here's the concert. We have George Pearl, Short Symphony. Wow. (laughs) Okay. What a starter there. (laughs) That's a starter. Yeah. Gunther Schuller's Concerto for Contrabassoon and Orchestra. Okay. Then the three movements for orchestras, how it's listed, and then David Diamond's Fourth Symphony. So that's a very modern program. Very modern program, and so the the committee. It's a very brief list, a very brief letter, I should say, uh, and they do include one alternate, okay. which is that you can actually find on the website too. It's listed. Because remember, the last couple of years, they've been hidden. We haven't had them. Yeah, they started out by telling us who the runners-up were, and yeah. then they took a couple of years off. Exactly. And now they're back to telling us who were the, who were the also-rans, I yes. guess, the, the second part. Exactly. So with Sessions, we just knew that 
sessions one, there was nothing else. Mm-hmm. But now we know that there was a, an alternate. Yes, there was. So the music jury unanimously recommends three movements for orchestra by Ellen Zwillick for the 1983 Pulitzer Prize. Uh, the work is characterized by its energy, its ability to realize fully the potential of the musical ideas. That's, mm-hmm. We've talked about that. And its clear and brilliant orchestral expression. At the same time, the work is strongly felt and communicates this to the listener. The jury's second choice is Drama for Orchestra by Vivian Fine, which was commissioned and performed by San Francisco Symphony. The work impressed the jury with its depth of emotional content and unique skill with the paintings of Edvard Munch. Okay, interesting. Uh, So the committee... We've got two household names at this point. <laughs> Robert Ward, who must have been, how old? Was, he's been on like every He's been on <laughs> many, many juries since he won his bullets. <laughs> I know. Yeah. So Robert Ward, Leon Kirchner, mm-hmm. and the chair is Miriam Gideon. So she's been a, a frequent member of committees in the past yes. as well. So. But what's fascinating to me about this is if you look at their, their ultimate winner and their alternative, they had decided clearly that it was time for a woman to win the Pulitzer Prize. And so they picked, uh, it was someone like Vivian Fine, someone who had a career and was recognized at that point as one of the prominent American composers. And then you have someone like Ellen Zwillick who is an up and coming. Mm -hmm. So they had decided clearly that it was time. And I fully agree, it was time that a woman, especially if you look at what had been uh, produced in the previous years by women composers, it was, it's shocking that it took until this year for someone to win. Yeah, absolutely. So glass ceiling was broken on the Pulitzer Prize in music, and that's uh, great to see. And the jury received an impressive amount of applications. There were 79 in competition here. So Which is an enormous number. That is a lot. That's we're a, used that's to seeing 20 to 30, I now know. 79. So yeah. it was beginning to see maybe a shift in the Pulitzer, so more transparency. Mm-hmm. We now know who are the runners-up, who's been nominated and who makes that final cut, uh, and more diversity because mm-hmm. we have more people coming in and submitting their scores to be considered. Yeah, so very positive evolution happening Things here. are starting to change. And, of course, uh, whenever she won, it was a big deal that a woman finally won the Pulitzer Prize. And if you look at the coverage from the time, that's what they really focus on mm-hmm. is, uh, yes, it's a wonderful work, but also <laughs> here a woman has broken the glass ceiling, as you mentioned. And she was asked about this, of course, very quickly. And so she said in the New York Times about being the first woman to win, she said, I hope it's an encouragement for other women. It's a kind of good sign for the world in a way. We're not that far away from the days when orchestras resisted having woman players. But I like to think that I won for my piece, not as a symbol, but I don't mean, mind being a positive symbol. Mm. I think that's a, a healthy good, way to look at it. Absolutely, absolutely. And there was a lot of good press around the piece whenever it premiered. So uh, the review in the New York Times, uh, May 7th, 1982, by Theodore W. Libby Jr. <laughs> so this is a new critic <laughs> new we've name. not come across. Yeah. Uh, so the new score by Ms. Zvilik also made a strong impression. An assertive, colorful essay, it seemed a bit overwrought at points, but possessed a sense of direction and coherence that combined with an innate vitality sustained the flow of events in a remarkably absorbing way. The expressiveness of the solo writing was particularly appealing. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, that pretty much jives with what we were just talking and kind of our impressions, the kind of coherence, the colorfulness of it. I mean, that really is hitting on what we noticed in our listens. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So 
I guess the well. Do you want to talk about her uh, other claim to fame? We should mention this before we give our verdict. Yeah. So the other claim to fame that um, we brought up, and you'll get to hear her uh, experiences <laughs> with, but. This was such an important kind of cultural event for a woman to win a Pulitzer Prize uh, that even Charles Schultz, the creator of Peanuts, <laughs> paid attention, and he heard a performance of her music. I think it was her flute concerto. Mm-hmm. Um, and so ended up writing a Peanuts cartoon in which Peppermint Patty and Marcy, Marcy go to the an orchestra concert and hear the flute concerto, <laughs> and she's name-checked in a Peanuts cartoon. <laughs> Which to me is just kind of, especially in the 1980s, like oh, the height of fame. Absolutely. Because, yeah. you know, we were both children in the yeah. 1980s. We were reading Peanuts all the every time. Day. It was a very, very popular cartoon uh, on television and everything. And it was uh, such an important point that in the 1990s, uh, Professor Zavillik actually composed a piece called the Peanuts Gallery with an individual piece for each of the <laughs> individual characters. Mm-hmm. And so kind of returned the favor and then showed up in the cartoon again a little bit later. But we'll be sure to post that Peanuts cartoon on our website so you can get a, a look at uh, this kind of moment in time when an American composer actually pushes through to popular culture in a very interesting and big way. Yes, and again, not to keep plugging it, but yeah, make sure to listen to the bonus episode because there's some pretty endearing stuff that you'll hear about how she describes that whole experience with yeah. Charles Schultz. Really fascinating. So, All right, Dave. Yes. It's time for us to say whether this is a hit or a miss for us. So what do you think? Well, I, I kind of alluded to it earlier in the week that I was a little... Mm, That's what you're telling me. I was telling you. <laughs> I said, don't tell me everything. I know, I, I know. I, I so, can tell there, there's a little hesitation there. There was a little hesitation, but I went back and, like I said, I had an epiphany after listening to it under headphones because mm. I could hear much more of it. Sure. I don't. Th- it was an old recording, I think. that was It was Indianapolis Symphony from decades ago, so I think it was bad quality. So I heard a lot more. And so the question I asked myself was, do I want to listen to more of her music? Mm. Does it make me want to? And the answer would be yes. Mm -hmm. And so for that, I would say it is a hit because at least sparked my interest. And uh, I liked a lot of the orchestral colors Mm -hmm. that were there. So yeah. Yeah. How about you? Uh, especially that first movement. Yeah. That first movement yeah. is just it's sparkling. Great. I just love that first movement. Um, to me, it kind of loses me in the second and third movement. I don't have the same kind of interest. Yeah. And I think that's just because the the buildup of that first movement is just so overwhelming. Um, and it's one of those things that I'm surprised it's not performed more. How many I mean, times have we said that? How many times that? have we said this? But this would seem to be perfect. I mean, it's, it's hard. Yeah, it is hard. <laughs> just, I mean, it's a very difficult piece. But it's the perfect length to put into a concert and I'm just surprised that I've never heard this live. I've never seen, it probably is performed more than I know, but at least in terms of my experiences, I've never seen that it's going to be performed and I would love to hear this live because I think it would be really effective. So to me, it's a hit. Yeah. I think you hit on something important. No, hit on something. (laughs) Uh, Earlier, talking about when you sit down and see a symphony on a program, you're expecting a 45-minute major work because that's a vestige of romanticism. Mm -hmm. And I think the programming is still that way. So if you, there are so many American composers, Walter Piston, David Diamond, all these people who wrote shorter symphonies, Mm -hmm. Roy Harris, they're not 45 minutes, but maybe people just don't want a program because they think, oh, a symphony has to be the second half of the concert. But put two of them together. Uh, You could. So you take two of these 20-minute symphonies, put them together, and you have something really satisfying. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I know. So I I think we need to break that mold that a symphony has to be Mahler symphony length. Absolutely. And and bring in pieces like this because it would be 
great to hear an orchestra play it. And I mean, certainly we have great wind ensembles. I think our colleague in the, mm-hmm. the wind ensemble here would love to perform her music and do a transcription of this. Or yeah, something. it's just so colorful. Yeah. Well, that's it for this episode of Hearing the Pulitzers. As always, you can find more about this project and the Peanuts cartoon at our <laughs> website, hearingthepulitzers.com, where you'll also find links in a short bibliography where you can read more about Ellen Tafe's Villick. Also, remember our bonus episode, which will be dropping yes. very soon. And you can follow us and get an announcement about that on Facebook and Twitter at H Pulitzers, and also find some links between episodes. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to help people find the show. And then finally, join us next episode. We discuss a British-born American composer, Bernard Rands, who won for his work for tenor and orchestra, Conti del Sol. Until then, keep listening. Keep listening.